Today on Sagittarian Matters, glasses, getting over financial scarcity, neuroses, and more. With my guests, Ariel Schrag and Beth Pickens. Stay tuned. from Los Angeles and welcome to the second glasses themed episode of Sagittarian Matters in which we discuss the soft science and aftermath of the glasses nightmare that I am currently living in. Today I am joined by cartoonist Ariel Schrag who will discuss her own downward spiral into glasses neuroses and frequent contributor to the show Beth Pickens who has something to say about financial scarcity and self-worth. If you didn't hear part one of the glasses fiasco essentially I paid a lot of money for a pair of glasses. I was told that my giant prescription would look good in these glasses and not as if I had a tiny face seen through a backwards telescope. This was not the case. I picked them up. The tiny face was there within my own face. I tried to return the glasses. Shenanigans ensued. The pinnacle was the manager yelling at me and then ghosting me. So that's the backstory. But you should know that during the course of this, I turned not only on the manager in the store, but also on myself. I decided to beat myself up for spending too much money on this thing, for uh, being someone who wasn't good with money and didn't understand that I couldn't solve this problem that way and that I deserved this and blah, blah, blah. You can hear it all on last week's episode with special guests Valerie Stadler and Isaac Soloway Strozier. But you don't need to hear it in order to hear what happens next. Now I talk to Beth Pickens. She's a Capricorn, an arts consultant, a strategic planner, and a grant writer. She is also the author of the book, Your Art Will Save Your Life. Beth is a friend of the show, and you can find her on Instagram at Beth Pickens Consulting and online at BethPickens.com. Now please enjoy my talk with Beth Pickens. Welcome back to Sagittarian Matters. I mean, I feel like I should fully disclose that I asked to return for this very special follow-up episode to the glasses debacle of 2018. Well, this is this is nice because I'm usually asking you. I mean, I, I want you on the show all the time. Every time we have a special interview, every time there's a political moment, I want to know what you have to say. My, my fresh take on the glasses. Your fresh take on the glasses. So why are you here? What made you want to come to the show to have your say? Okay. Well, because I have a lot of opinions, but I was sick when you were doing the recording of the last podcast and I couldn't weigh in because I was too phlegmy. Mm-hmm. But, and so I listened to the episode and I thought, we're not done. This story is not over. I mean, truly it's not over because we're still waiting for the outcome. Like what's going to happen? Is your money going to be returned? We know you're in these new glasses. They look great. We don't know the other frames and lenses. We don't know what's going to happen and whether or not the money that you have been has been restored to you is going to last, right? Right. So that's still lingering. But what I'm interested in is in the, the psycho-human drama of it all and the, the psychosocial, the soft sciences of this story and what we have to learn about our sort of financial legacies of our families of origin and what we continue to think we can have or not have. Because there was a point in the podcast where you were talking about like the sort of poor person mentality and like this is my fault because I wanted an expensive thing and now I'm being punished, right? And right. I think so many of us have – 
it's different for each person and a different sort of financial threshold, but a lot of us have, and it's not even correlated to how much money there was or wasn't when you're growing up. It more has to do with the psychology of the family. But so many of us have that sort of threshold of, well, this is acceptable, but that this is not. And if I do this, I'm going to be punished. There's always this like, I'm going to be punished <laughs> if I do this nice thing or buy this expensive thing or have this debt or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I was really interested in that point. Well, I want to tell listeners that you have a part of your book, a part of your workbook, a part of your workshop where you have people kind of go into the financial legacies of their family. So that's like what they grew up understanding about money, what their family grew up understanding about money and how that's been passed down in maybe uh, enacting itself in their lives now. Is that true? Yeah. My favorite workshop to teach is a two-part workshop I developed called Getting Real With Money because I love talking about the emotion and psychology of finance and how what we're steeped in in our families of origin continues to affect us decades later in ways that we don't aren't always even conscious of because money is so deeply emotional and it is so tied to what we learned growing up about worth and scarcity and abundance and value and what's valuable and what's not and those things go on to impact how we make educational and career choices for the rest of our lives and some people you know when you start to unpack it well, a lot of transformative things can happen. And so it's one of my favorite things to talk to my clients about and to lead workshops about is sort of looking in with probing questions, plumbing the depths of one's familial financial legacy. And then what happens if you just realize there was a lot of trauma there? You're fucked. No, I'm just going to get That's when you get to do something about it. Because first you become aware, like, oh, shit, I have some stuff around this issue. I have some stuff about money. And first we just have to become – we have to become aware of it, right? That has to be the first thing. Because when we're sort of moving through life unconsciously or unaware of our wounds and traumas and family scars, then we may continue to operate in ways that harm us or don't fulfill – what our adult selves want. They are counter to what we are trying to do with our lives. So first is becoming aware, like, okay, I have some money issues. Maybe I'll seek out some support or help or resources to start to unpack this a little and mm -hmm. discover what went on then and how is it impacting me now and how can I make some different choices and mm. change my relationship to money. Mm. And, you know, there's also a, a word that we've discussed in the podcast before called punk damage. Oh. Punk damage. Also, it's uh, similar to queer damage, many other subculture or marginalized culture and group damages mm -hmm. related to money. <laughs> but punk damage is like where you just like, even if you're an adult with an adult job and a normal amount of money, you cut corners in the weirdest, most mm -hmm. unnecessary ways and you have some kind of righteous reason mm -hmm. for doing so. Yeah. Like you're like... Oh no, like I need to I need to use that bag 15 million times mm -hmm. because I'm saving the earth or like you know classically when I was maybe like 30 or 31 my girlfriend at the time refused to write the wrong code on the coffee bag at New Seasons because <laughs> it was cheaper. <laughs> I was like go to New Seasons, take this bag that I've been saving for 3 years <laughs> that has the name of the cheaper coffee on it. That way we can save Two dollars. Yeah. And she was like, I'm not going to get excluded from our favorite grocery store that's two blocks away because you want to save two dollars. Yeah. And I was like, oh, rats. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I, I see it come up with artists who travel for work and what that looks like when you're 22 and what that looks like when you're 45. 
and what changes have necessarily been made and what changes need to happen, but you're unwilling to. Like, like what? I mean, if you don't have, like, buy the water if you need the water. If yeah. you don't have a water bottle and you're thirsty, just buy the water. <laughs> it's so expensive. It's so expensive. But sometimes you need water. <laughs> Okay, so this glasses thing. <laughs> so the glasses thing. So I was so I felt such a, a, a an urge of empathy for you when you were expressing like the pain of sort of turning on yourself. Like this happened to me. I'm stupid. I'm bad because I wanted this nicer version of something that I've been using all my life. Yes. And I just thought, oh God, how many of us have had that exact moment? And I thought that's so useful to talk about because you didn't do anything wrong, right? But you felt in that moment like you were being punished. See, this happened because you were trying to have this expensive thing. Because I didn't know. Because I didn't know that if I paid this much money, this thing that I asked them wouldn't happen. Right. But I didn't understand. I didn't have the understanding of that. And that I thought that money would be a little magic that would solve a problem. Right. And then, I mean, but also the people that worked there have a bit of a victim-blaming mentality from the top <laughs> down, as seen by manager Ivana screaming the word petite face at me. <laughs> I'm going to say yelling. <laughs> screaming yeah. sounds more fun, but yelling the word petite face at me and telling me that I need to take some responsibility for this. That's, that's not consistent with any us-based customer service methodology. Like that's just <laughs> not I know this is a, it's a German company, right? Yes. I'm not going to try to do a German accent. Please, you're, so you're very good at because it. Because you got to call Jibs Cameron for that because she does the Werner Herzog perfectly. And she could narrate the entire saga as Werner Herzog, which I think could be maybe the next episode. But <laughs> I, I mean, in our culture of how businesses run, you're, you're usually trying to work with the customer so that they are satisfied with your product and want to buy the product again and want to recommend your product. That's kind of how money is made in American businesses. It's, that's <laughs> so it's sort of a tenet of how, and that's not true everywhere, yeah. you know, but customer service is sort of this deeply ingrained way of doing business in the U.S. So their reaction to you is just, it's all, like we're dumbfounded hearing it because we're just so unaccustomed to somebody saying, you need to take responsibility for choosing this product that didn't work, yeah. that we recommended, yeah. that had we thought for two beats longer, we could have said that's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know... Ivana was yelling at me. I was, uh, you know, trying to stand up for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, I do have a feeling like I was getting punished for not understanding that this higher end thing wasn't going to change my life or save my life. And that I should have paid a normal amount of glasses at a normal place with people that spoke normal ways. And by normal ways, I mean like, you know, I say, I have a giant prescription. And then they say... Nope. <laughs> That's too big. Right. You won't be happy. That's right. what I mean by a normal way of speaking. Right. Yeah. And and yet, like, why can't you go after luxury or finer goods? You know, like, as a person gets older and makes more money and, and wants different, nicer things, like, that's okay, too. And some of the things that you use in your daily life. Like, I remember I used to have this backwards idea that you should only spend money on things you never used. And the things you used all the time, you should buy the cheap version. And I remember Michelle T, we were, we used to, when we were having work meetings, sometimes we would go to Barney's and just look at clothes like we were in a museum. We just like look at beautiful things and talk about the organization we were running. 
And I remember she helped flip this thing for me because I was looking at some some nice jeans that were on sale on the Barney's, the co-op floor, not the, you know, not the really expensive floor. And I was like, but you can't have really expensive jeans, even if they're nice, you know? And she was like, no, no, no. The thing you use every day, that's the thing that you should spend lots of money on and have really nice goods that you're using every day. And it was the opposite of how I always thought. I thought you have a nice thing and you never touch it. Mm-hmm. Which is some weird, like old world thinking that I, I don't need my f- potato family farmers in Ireland certainly weren't doing that. I don't know where I picked up that tip. Yeah. But I definitely had this ingrained belief that if you have nice things, you can't touch them. Like what kind of things? Um, like a garment or a really expensive product of some sort. Mm-hmm. Like, well, so if you have a really nice perfume, then don't use it. I don't, I'm not like this anymore, but yeah. that was definitely like sort of what I absorbed and inherited and believed as an adult. And I can trace it back because I remember when I was young. I mean, I come from a working class family and neither my parents, you know, my dad dropped out of high school. My mom graduated early because she was pregnant. I was the first person to go to college. Some class damage back there. But my mom, after my parents got divorced, my mom was really mad any time my dad gave me money or spent money on me, which was the only way he could show any affection. It was Mm -hmm. like, here's $50. And so if I wanted nice things as a teen, and I'm talking nice things like I wanted Doc Martens, which were $100. To my mother, that was outrageous. And she would say, you can't have $100 boots in this household. So I learned in my mind that there was something not even morally corrupt, but that I, my life could not accommodate things that were expensive. And I'm talking expensive meant $100 boots, mm-hmm. which, you know, expensive to everybody's childhood is different. It's correlated to however you grew up in whatever class circumstances. But so my mom had that ingrained in me that I, that anything over a certain amount of money was unacceptable and I couldn't have it. But then she would do things like she bought a piano and started taking piano lessons and bought herself expensive jewelry. So there was just this really like <laughs> disorganized framework around money that then in college I would have friends around me who who would say like, no, like that's how much nice shoes cost. This is how much nice shoes cost. But I – and my immediate go-to was always like, I can't have that. That's not okay to do. That's not for me. That's not for me. Well, that's like the same thing where I, I thought like I – you know, I I got worn down by going to so many glasses places and being so frustrated that I was like, I can pay this much for glasses. Mm-hmm. I will never tell anyone how much I paid for these glasses because it just felt crazy. Mm-hmm. And it felt like, like, oh, like un, unseemly, like mm-hmm. just to tell people like I just paid $1,100 for these glasses. Mm-hmm. I paid more than anyone I know for a pair of glasses mm-hmm. that look as it was said in the previous episode, a bit like Walmart glasses mm-hmm. from the 1980s, but that's the look I was going for. Right. That was the look you were going for, but the, they need to have a prescription in them. They need a prescription in them, and they need to look like a refined version. Yeah. Walmart, but make it chic. Exactly. Well, it's sort of like, do you ever ask yourself when you're considering buying something and you kind of like it, but you think, you know what? I like this, but I don't like it $80. I like yeah. it $40. Well, you know, on top of my, however I was raised with... You know, my mom being kind of a grifter and money mm-hmm. going in and out. Then in high school, I got a job working at a used clothing store. So I, my job was to buy clothing from you. So th- think of the play, think of Buffalo Exchange, wherever you go, where you feel judged by the person behind the counter. That was me doing the judging. But it was, I was assessing in my brain. I knew exactly how much things could sell for. And I knew exactly how much to like bump up or bump down that based on the label, based on the condition, based on the trend, based on whatever. And so leaving that job after a few years, I kind of had that value brain. And so I would go places and be like, 
this isn't worth this. Mm -hmm. This isn't worth this. Which meant sometimes I just wouldn't get the thing at all, even though I really wanted it. Because I was like, it's the moral of the thing. Mm. I can't pay this much for this in this store. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something really valuable about, because now we are women of approaching certain ages. I'm, I'm like sailing through the last six weeks of my 30s right now. Just so you know, someone wrote fan mail to the podcast saying, thanking us for giving them um, an idea of how to be middle-aged and queer. I know, I know. <laughs> we are, to some queer elders, even though on, you know, most days I feel like 16 or maybe 22 or something. But I think it's really good to reassess what things are important to you and what you're willing to spend money on. Like, the, that should change. Yeah. Our financial values and, and your ideas of luxury and comfort and what you want and need, that's different at for me now at 39 than it was when I was 29 or 19. Of course that's going to change. It's going to be different in 10 more years. So my value system has to change too. But the problem is when I get stuck in whatever moral compass I had at 25 and I'm trying to apply it to me now at 39, mm-hmm. the economics aren't the same and I'm not the same. Mm-hmm. So then how do I dig my way out of this? Well, I mean, hopefully you are just, you get your money back. Yeah. But I want the lesson to be if you spend $1,100 on glasses, that's okay. You just got to love them. The problem was these didn't work. They didn't work. But if they worked and you loved them and they were $1,100, great. Yeah. That's the thing you're using every single day. I want you to have the best thing that makes you so happy because that's a thing you need and a thing you want. You need them in mm-hmm. your everyday life and you want them to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. So to me, the moral is like if you can pay for that, and you want that, get it. And if you're not happy with it, then it has to go back. Yeah. Which maybe seems obvious to the listener, but obviously we're in episode two now talking about the glasses. It's not It's not quite obvious. It's not so cut and dry. Well, you know, then I had like a weird shame feeling of being someone <laughs> who like cared so much. Because everyone in there everyone that goes in that place, because we're in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which is a little out of scale to the rest of the country. Right. You know, this is a place where people go in there and probably buy several pairs of glasses and don't bat an eye. And then I buy one pair of glasses and I'm like, look, these need to be the best glasses I've ever had in my whole life. Yeah. And so then I feel a little bit of shame or feel like a little kid going in there with my like piggy bank. And- I mean, people return $4 items that they're not happy with. Like you, you, you were getting a, an item that is specially custom to your face and it was, it was wrong. Yeah. And it was recommended to you incorrectly. And I wish to to use what are we using as her name? Ilana? Uh, Lana. Lana. If we use Lana's frame of thinking, like they need to take some responsibility yeah. <laughs> for how the transaction started from the beginning. Yeah. Had the had the customer service representative been been present paying attention to what you were saying and fully engaged when you're about to make a major purchase for this medical device that's also aesthetic. Yeah. Then none of this would have ever happened because she would have been like, oh, I'm sorry. No, actually, that's not going to work for you. Let's look at some other frames. And then I would have been like, oh, OK. And then it would have been done because this is my last ditch effort. And so I was ready to be like, let's see if this will work. And if it doesn't work, I'm putting these to bed. Yeah, I'm wearing the fake ones that I got from an estate sale several years ago for two dollars and I'm turning the page. Yeah. And it's just it's not wrong to want nice things. No. And it's not wrong to have the nice thing. No. I remember um, another Michelle T thing that she used to say when when she was recovering from sort of like class damage and becoming a different adult than the adult she'd grown up with. She said, well, I remember Dorothy Allison said, "There's, you know, I don't want to be poor. There's nothing great about being poor. So I don't have to want to be poor either. I was like, oh, great. Everybody's liberated from it. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I think when you grow up punk or maybe queer, there is some glamour around being poor. There's glamour around being otherized. Yeah. So people try to clock in a little extra oppression where they can. Totally, totally. But then as you get older, you get to shed that a little bit and still be righteous. Well, and there's nothing like aging to show you that there is no glamour in being poor. No, like my teeth. Give me a break. Everybody heard during our live episode that I went for a year eating soft room temperature foods because I had all these non-profity jobs where I couldn't afford to get my teeth fixed. Yeah. Not glamorous. No. No cred. No. no cred. I didn't like go to a, sh- a punk show and get a standing ovation and get carried around the room like Eddie Vedder from that music video. No. We just want you to have your teeth fixed and have nice glasses. That's what I want. Thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> okay. Beth begins. So the update is that I called my credit card company and I said, is this a reason to dispute a charge? Mm -hmm. And they said, absolutely. So they disputed the charge. Thus far, I have the money back. It's possible the manager will come back like a monster at the end of a movie Mm -hmm. and try and rebuke the charges. The the, like zombie hand coming up from the soil in the grave. Yeah. Telling us that the sequel is going to happen. Because you're still in possession of both the frames and the lenses, right? Yes, I am. But now I've worn the frames at least six times. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many times. Yeah. But you can easily part with them and return them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's it's come to a point where I do enjoy them, but I'm not so attached to them because... You don't like them. You don't like them $600 as fashion glasses. No. <laughs> I would never walk into that store and be like, you know what? Fuck the prescription. I need these frames. I'm never going to find them anywhere else. $600, I'm doing it. Yeah. So that's what's going on right now. Do you have any advice for what I should do if she rebukes the charges? Hold your line. Just hold it and say, this is unacceptable. Do I say that to the company itself or to the credit card company? Um, well, to your credit card company, continue to dispute. And then to the, everybody who works there, just keep going up the chain of command as far as you can go and say, I don't, I don't know how this went so off the rails. You sold me a product that wasn't going to work for me. Yeah. You're the experts in recommending frames, expensive frames to people. So here are your frames back. They didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Take them back. I do want to say as a side note, they never even bent the – so the glasses I'm wearing now are the glasses that were like my second option from a different place mm-hmm. that I tried to get the lenses fit into, but it didn't work. The person bent the lens, bent the frames to fit my mm-hmm. ears mm-hmm. so they don't fall off my face, made sure they were comfortable. Mm-hmm. Offer to give me nose pads, all these things. The ones from this very expensive place who is remaining unnamed, they still haven't even been bent back to my ears or anything. So, and then they have these heavy ass lenses, so they fall off my face. Mm -hmm. Like they don't even stay on my face with no lenses. And then when my regular lenses are in them, they fall directly off my face. This is not a place to do business with. No, no. This is not. This is not a place to do business with. Sometimes you ever encounter business and you're just like, wait, I, do you want to earn money? What What's going on here? It seems like you don't want to earn money. I remember there's a bookshop, there's a a bookstore shop and bookshelf shop in San Francisco in the Castro, and my spouse and I would go there, you know, to look at books and to go to readings and stuff. And the proprietor would make hand build these beautiful bookshelves, and. There was something going on with him where he didn't want to part with them ever. So you would have to actually just walk out with it and say, I'm putting this in my car. How much is it? Because if you try to say like, you know, I'm looking for a bookshelf like this, this size or, you know, this kind of wood, he would almost talk you out of buying it. And if, you, if there was something ready made in the store, because there were many, 
they wouldn't have price tags. And if you'd say, you know, I really like this. How much is this? He'd say, well, I, you know, I, I don't know if that one's for sale. It's like he couldn't part with it. And so at a certain point, you, you either had to wrestle the thing from him and like throw money as you're running out the door with his bookshelves or just accept like this guy might not be in this might not be a business this might be something else so i wonder if this unnamed glasses shop if what they're doing is actually more if this is actually like a postmodern happening and not a glasses shop that's how it feels or <laughs> like what they're actually putting you to is this is sort of like a gestalt experiment where you have to learn to stand up for yourself while somebody is screaming at you in german yeah, and yeah. you have to like look at the empty chair and there's your mother talk to her <laughs> You know, I think this isn't a glasses shop. I think this is a social experiment. Well, I have to say I was drawing upon a lot of my resources from years and years of therapy when I was standing up for myself in the face of these people that were gaslighting me, if I may use the new parlance, and just saying like, no, no, they look great. And then like, okay, you passed that test. Well, they don't look great, but you're still not getting your money back because you should have said, oh, you did say, okay, next level. And they just keep changing it over and over and over yeah. again. Because if they're going bankrupt, they just need to file for bankruptcy. <laughs> they're not going to stop bankruptcy with your $1,100. Yeah. So they either need to return your money. Either way, if they're going bankrupt, they're going bankrupt. Should I go on Judge Judy? I don't know if you want to blow your one chance of Judge Judy on them. Oh, really? Because I feel like better litigious things are going to happen in your life. As an advice columnist, something's going to happen. You think so? <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you're going to be the plaintiff or the defendant. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Amy Ranham. Michelle Lemoyne, Shoshana Ruth Wachter, Mary Pinson, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $500, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet, like the insect, leg, like its appendage, at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to seeing your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's Ponyo's voice. Ariel Schrag is the author of the autobiographical comics Awkward, Definition, and Potential. She started documenting her life in comics form at age 16. Ariel's new book, Part of It, is a collection of comics spanning 20 years, all surrounding the idea of identity, sense of self, groups, and how one becomes part of it. Ariel came on the show to talk about a particularly long section of her new book, a comic detailing the many, many times that she has purchased and returned glasses. Now, please enjoy my talk with Ariel Schrag. Um, okay, we have to talk about your book, and we need to talk about a, a very large section of your book is devoted to your mental... <laughs> <laughs> is devoted to your anxiety around glasses. Yes, yes. The longest story in the book. Well, actually, I think the story about the kids is longer, but... Okay. How long is this? How long is the glasses section? It is 25 pages. <laughs> I think eight pairs of glasses. <laughs> Spanning how long? I, I ultimately blame lens crafters and their 30-day return policy, which, like... Um, uh, what is the word? Like... Facilitated my 
descent into Glass's insanity? Um, so I read it, say, I secured my own glasses. I read it and I was like, <laughs> well, Ariel is really... <laughs> Well, basically, we should tell people what happens in the... You smug with your pair of glasses. <laughs> I was smug, and look at me now. <laughs> so in this book, in, you, you keep, you go and you get glasses. I'm just going to paraphrase. Please correct me. You go and you get glasses, and you try them on in the store, and you're like, oh, God, I don't know, I don't know. And then you're like, okay, these are the ones. And you take them home, and then you just start tripping about yeah. it. And you start thinking it and overthinking it, and you wake up with a sense of dread. Like, I have done the wrong thing I need to go and back. And this is what I look like for the rest of my life. I can't do this. This is my face. Like I have yeah. done this thing this that's going to ruin it's my not life. Just face. It's like it's like entire being. Like your glasses make they just. I mean, they are the first thing anybody looks at. They are your personality. They're they like your inform your your style, your gender, yeah, your personality assumptions people make about gender your intelligence. Is such a huge part of it too, and that was one of the problems that I talk about in the story, which is that this, and that we've discussed like the fact that there really is a difference between female and male glasses because females generally speaking have smaller boned faces. And, and I, for me, my gender presentation is like masculine of center and I could, just did not feel comfortable in glasses that could be interpreted as feminine. But this was very difficult because that meant trying to find masculine glasses that fit my face, that weren't just too big. And I felt I had a lot of gender shame around this process because I would try to buy the male ones and the storekeepers, you know, or the sales associates would be like, oh, no, 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 those are too big. And I'd be like, no, 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 these are, these are right. These are good, like asserting my gender. And then I go home and I'd be like, oh, my God, these are falling off my face. I guess I have to wear cat eye glasses. <laughs> like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're feminine. I know. Well, I'm only feminine because these are the ones that would fit my face. If yeah, I, I, I mean, I would be. I guess you're feminine because. I would, I would be a full on bull dagger if it yeah. wasn't for my face size. <laughs> Well, I do want to tell you that J.D. Sampson was on the show like two weeks ago talking about how she has to buy children's glasses because her face oh, is so small. That's so funny. She has two pairs of glasses made by the brand Oshkosh Bagash. That's hilarious. So, okay, so this was happening in the story. And so, but it happens over and over and over. You know, it happens one time when you're like, oh, Ariel had a problem with her glasses. But then it just keeps happening. Oh, Yeah. Um, it doesn't stop. You return it gets worse. many, many pairs. I feel that maybe you've made enemies at many of these franchises yes. of lens crafters. And so then I ask you now, how do you assess a pair of glasses? And did you find your perfect pair of glasses? Did you find Mr. Right? So you kind of want like the, you know, the, the with the title card <laughs> at the end of the movie. Like what, 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 how did this glasses search finally end? Well, basically... So at the end of the story, I do find a pair of glasses that I keep really only because they don't allow returns and I just didn't have enough money to buy another pair. Um, but I was not confident in these glasses. I came up with a million problems with them. And I just wore contacts primarily for a while. Um, 
but you know was okay with wearing them when I had to and then like I'd always kind of want I've, and I'm still kind of obsessed with this idea of the perfect wireframes if I could just find them I ended up getting a pair of wireframes that my girlfriend at the time was in support of and I wore those for a while but then I started dating a new girl who is my current partner and she was not okay with the wireframes <laughs> she was but before that, actually, I had bought the glasses I have now, which are just kind of like typical, I don't know, um, I don't know what shape you would call them, but they're you could call tortoise shell. Horn-rimmed like, almost. Horn, almost horn-rimmed, just Ray-Ban-esque glasses, although their their brand isn't. Um, oh, really? Yes. That's, that's who I'm tangling with right now. Um, yeah, well, I love these glasses. Um, and I, but I still have the pair I bought that I couldn't return and the wireframes kind of on hold, but these are the ones I have now. And I just pray that they never break. And I'm really not sure what I would do if they do break. Although I do also feel like I've learned that you can kind of get used to anything. And yes, it may not be the perfect face that you're supposed to have, but maybe it could become the perfect face. Like sometimes you just have to like let something be and, and move on because ultimately I was just go like, I almost feel like I could have had that obsessive spiral over anything at that point in, at that period in my life. And it happened to attach itself to glasses, but I've had like hypochondria spirals, jeans spirals. My spirals <laughs> tend to be either about, like a physical ailment that I have or clothing for whatever reason, that's what I obsess over. One of my um, friends has said that her girlfriend has free floating anxiety. And so it will just, it just, it's looking for a place to land. That is exactly my situation. Um, and I talk about this in therapy, but like my, my anxiety needs to attach to something. Um, and so better it be glasses like you know than like oh my god this mole like i think this mole is you know cancer or whatever and like going to a million doctors like um until they finally like remove it unnecessarily or whatever um you know what i mean like it's going to be something and so but you know i also go through phases in my life where i'm not as anxious and i can kind of be like normal but you know at this period of time I graduated from college. I wasn't really working. Like I needed to figure out my life, what I was doing, who I was. And so I just, everything was tunneled into classes. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. Ariel, thank you for your your glasses, your glasses wisdom. You will get through it. I know you will. Thank you. Um, I have an advice question I just found in the heap that I wonder if you have an opinion on. Sure. The person said, Dear Sagittarian Matters, can polyamorous relationships ever work? <laughs> <laughs> I I dated a person who I was super into and she this is in my early 20s and she knew that she would 
you know, never want to be monogamous, um, knew that she would, you know, always want to be in a live, you know, live the polyamorous life or whatever. And I was so into her. I was just like, that's fine. Like, and it seems crazy to me that somebody would say, no, I'm not going to date you just because you're dating other people. Like I, I was just like, nothing could be worse than not being with her. So, you know, so what if she's like dating other people? And so we were dating and it just slowly, cumulatively, I realized was not okay. I was, I just got too jealous. I mean, she did nothing wrong. She was always very open and, you know, followed all the rules of the ethical slut or whatever. But I just didn't, it just wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And we ended up, you know, where I said, do you think we could be more exclusive? And she said, no. And then I sobbed a bunch and now we're really good friends. Oh, so that's me. Yeah. But she, you know, has gone on to have very successful polyamorous relationships. Um, so, you know, maybe the answer is yes. Yeah, I but, think... But, but both people have to be really into it. And they need to... You, I think you need to be really into it before you get together with the person and know that about yourself. It's nice. It seemed like you knew your own or you learned your own boundaries and limitations. I learned my own boundaries and I don't think I would ever want to be in that, which doesn't mean that I wouldn't ever experiment with openness at some degree. I haven't, but, um, you know, I'm, there's no like hard line, but in terms of like, you know, actual polyamory where like, you know, people have girlfriends and then the girl, then everybody kind of sleeps together every now and then I, that's not for me. That just seems like so much work. And it's like, get a hobby. It's like a hobby. I can't buy a pair of glasses. So if I'm going to like deal with like three, four other people that I'm like having sex with. No. In my experience in the queer community, often there has been a greater processing to sex ratio. So the cost benefit analysis hasn't really worked out on polyamory. Like you end up processing with your partner, like seven times as much as actual sex you're having with other people. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, well, I'm saying the same thing as you. I'm going to concur with you that you have to look in within yourself and see if that's something you can do, something you have time to do, something you have the emotional resources to do. And you should never do it for somebody else because that will backfire. It will. Like you can't, you can't, like, like with many things in relationships, you can't also do it, do something that makes you uncomfortable and then resent the person. Yeah, exactly. For making you making you do but i do remember there was a certain time in portland oregon in the early 2000s where people would get essentially abused with the cop like they had beaten with a copy of the ethical slut and if you were wanted to be monogamous it was essentially like you were like george bush like it was (laughs) you were outing yourself as like the biggest prude square to not want to have sex with the whole community at the same time yeah and this you know the person that i dated she was never like that she never made me feel bad or uncool for realizing i wasn't into it she was very respectful that's really nice i know somebody wanted to date me and they were like deeply polyamorous and i was like that's not my thing maybe i could do it after dating for a certain amount of time and then but then they were like banking on that they're like okay so you're saying if we date exactly four years to the day that at that the strike of the four-year clock then it could be open season and i was like this is too much stress 
Oh my God. It's like, yeah. go be free, the like, go, go to a cuddle party or a, a munch or whatever kind yeah. of sex romp you need to. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.